So um, I'm going to be making an argument about less accountability, and I'm not applying it to, um, let's say, sort of certain Latin American states or certain cities in the U.S. and so forth that we know are kind of corrupt for lots of other reasons and exogenous reasons there, too. Um, and, but we can go into all that. Um, first, accountability. Oops, hello, accountability. You should be able to just, now, I don't need, by the way, you can all relax because I don't need this, <laughs> this PowerPoint thing. So if it doesn't work, I can do it just fine without it. Now, this, in principal agent theory, econo economic principal agent theory, the accountability of an agent uh, depends on the principal's capacity to monitor and, sanction, monitor and sanction. So what does accountability mean? It means the agent's behavior is induced by the threat of sanctions wielded by the principal. Um, so in an important edited volume that um, Goldie Shabbat had on her shelf just as I walked into her office a few minutes ago, um, Adam Javorsky, Susan Stokes, and Bernard Manin describe accountability as, quotes, as no more than, quotes, the relation between outcome and sanctions. That's what accountability is, sanctions producing outcome. In a pure accountability model, they write, voters use the vote only for one purpose, which is to sanction the incumbent. That's a pure accountability model. And Jim Furon writes, quotes, in the jargon of economic theory, relations involving accountability are agency relations in which one party is understood to be an agent who makes some choices on behalf of a principal who has powers to sanction or reward the agent. Very, very simple. Um, and that's a definition of accountability that appears a lot in everyday speech as well. So as, as Bob Ben puts it, when people seek to hold someone accountable, they're usually planning some kind of punishment. That's, but accountability also means giving an account. In French, rendre compte. In German, Rechenschaft abgeben, forgive my accent. Um, and although the term originated with financial accounts, Accountability implies giving more than a numerical, but also a narrative account. What I call a narrative account, narrative accountability, involves explaining why you did something. So if you think of, let's say, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is re of the United States. The Supreme Court is relatively immune to sanctions, not completely immune to sanctions, obviously, but relatively immune to sanctions. But it feels a form of narrative accountability. It has to give reasons for what it's done. It involves showing and explaining and justifying. And that's the definition that a couple of theorists have recently in the political theory profession, people like Mark Felt at Oxford, have brought forward. And actually, the Oxford English Dictionary gives only that rendering. If you look up accountability in the OED, it'll give this sort of old-fashioned narrative explaining type of um, communicative process. Um, and that, when I make the case for less accountability, I'm not making the case for less of that. I'm not making the case for less communication. In fact, I'd like to strengthen that communicative responsibility, or communicative process. Um, so, but this is kind of the nitty-gritty of where I'm going here, and it takes off from the piece that I did that came from that talk way back when, um, and that eventuated an article last year. In political science currently, the model of accountability and the model, indeed, of representation to court, the, as it is, is pretty, um, what the voter does is to get the representative 
to do something the representative would not otherwise do. And that's Robert Dahl's old, old-fashioned, intuitive notion of what power is, getting somebody to do something they would otherwise not do. So there's the representative. The representative would do A, but because of your sanctions or your carrots, they do B instead. They would otherwise not do Now, the model I'm pr proposing not to replace it, but as a very significant addition, and this is not brand new. Um, Kingdom came up with it in 81, and Scott Bernstein came up, with, you know, had a whole book called The Myth of Constituency Control in 89, and Simpson and all in their quite famous article, Dynamic Representation, had the, the third to last paragraph sort of t touches on this, and uh, Jim Fearon just a few years ago um, made a statement about it. Um, but basically, this idea has kind of like entered the profession at these various points and had zero effect, kind of the way Kuhn says things do when they're anomalies. Um, and the, actually, maybe I shouldn't take the time, but I was just in Goldie's office of, uh, about half an hour ago and looking at what happened to Fearon's article this 99 one in Javorsky's and Menendez and Susan Stokes' book, which is Menendez, Susan Stokes, and, and Javorsky are coming forward with a sanctions thing. And Jim Furon has this thing that says, actually, wait, stop. There's this whole other understanding of representation. They place it, actually. They make it the third article chapter in the book. And then in the introduction, when they give it this little paragraph that says, this is what he says. He says that, and they don't say it, he says that the rest of us are wrong. He just says, this is what he says, and then they go on. And that's exactly, again, what Kuhn says happens with anomalies. You just kind of note them, and you say, very interesting, you know. <laughs> and you don't say necessarily very interesting. You just publish it and think Jim Fearon's smart guy or something, but you don't take it in. So what I'm going to try to do is to make more of it, and you can tell me that's not a good idea, or whatever, or, or so. So this is the Challenger model, what I'm calling gyroscopic representation, and I use the word gyroscope because it's a navigational instrument. It keeps its own direction. That's the concept of a gyroscope. It goes in its own direction, and in this notion, the representatives, think of them as little sort of wind-up toys. Some of them are going to go north, some of them are going to go south, some of them are going to go east, and some of them are going to go west. That's just what they're going to do. They're preset to go in a certain direction for reasons exogenous to, the, to whatever it is. That's the way they're brought up, whatever. Um, but that's the way they're going to go, north, south, east, or west. And what the voter does is to take one of these and put it in the system. And the system then acts differently because now you've got a north-moving robot or whatever in there. So it's not that, whoops, what is going on? This is the damn, excuse me, virus scan, kill, come on, kill, 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 good. Okay. Um, so, so here, the voter, it's not that the voter has no power. It's just the voter has power over a different entity. The voter is getting the legislature to do something that the legislature would not otherwise do by putting this entity in it. Um, and, but not getting the representative to do anything that the representative would not do except go, go to the legislature. But, I mean, the legislature is going <coughs> north, south, east, or west. The, rep, legis, the legislator, the representative, is not being influenced in his or her direction by the sanctions of the vote. 
or the vote. So, so okay. So uh, I think um, that's the that's the difference here. And this is a normative. I'm going to make the argument that this is a normative model as well as a descriptive model. Sim Simpson said, for example, that Simpson et al. said that um, that uh, that this kind of representation was more characteristic of the Senate and the presidency in the United States. You might think of it also as being to some degree characteristic of some parties, certain sorts of parties in, in Europe, not all parties. Um, so the distinction is that in one case the representative is in, the behavior is induced by the power of the voter. In the other case, the, re the representative behavior is not touched by the power of the voter, but the, what the voter exercises power over is the larger system. Um, now, I'm going to argue that this other way is normatively as good. I'm not going to argue that it's better, although there'll be a tinge of better in, my, in what I say, but I'm not making the case on the other side. I'll, I have a more conservative case that's just norm, normatively as good. And... Um, let me give you a couple of examples, and this, these examples are going to maybe help you understand this. I come from Cambridge, Massachusetts. My, one of my senators is Teddy Kennedy. Um, he is a pretty gyroscopic representative. Um, we don't expect to influence his behavior particularly at all. He's, so to speak, one of us. Um, we put him there, and he's going to go on till he dies, um, probably, or... Uh, and um, his last time in Cambridge, there were, I think, 40,000 votes total. He got 32,000 of them. But the other 8,000 didn't go to one other candidate. They were sprinkled among, you know, 500 for a Green candidate, seven for a write-in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The Libertarian, I think, got 150 and so forth and so on. It wasn't as if there was any serious opposition. We have another, <coughs> we have another representative, Alice Wolfe, who is our representative in the state legislature. She ran she's run uncontested in the last three elections. Good old Alice Wolf. We like her, you know. Um, she's one of us. She does the same kind of thing. Um, I, I was looking her up on the web when I was thinking of using her as an example, and there she was, you know, uh, what, what did she think about gay marriages? Oh, she's, of course, she's, you know, very in the forefront of gay marriages. All the kinds of things that I would be for, good old Alice Wolf is for. Um, and, you know, no reason not to just keep voting her on in. Um, why did she go into politics? She goes into po she went into politics because she wanted to make those kinds of things happen. Now I'm going to give you another couple examples, and this one, these ones, if you happen to be on the left, are going to make you feel a little nervous. George W. Bush and John Kerry. Now Bush, in the last presidential election made quite a fuss. What was the biggest criticism he had of his opponent? The very biggest criticism he had of his opponent. Flip-flopping. John Kerry's like, now, did John Kerry flip-flop because he was being bought off by special interests? That was not the claim. The claim was that Kerry watched the polls. Whose polls? The polls out on, in California? The polls of his constituents. The polls of the people who were electing him. He was being an induced representative. He was he was doing just exactly what we in political science say you're supposed to do. That's our normative ideal as well as our descriptive ideal. When you read 
And that's what John Kerry was doing. He was saying, what, what is my policy? <coughs> Recently, there was some wind, they wanted to put windmills out on the, this was after the election, after the presidential election, when the issue is, should they put a lot of windmills out in Cape Cod Bay? Quite a controversial subject. Kenny, Kenny, what do you think? Uh, John, Senator Kerry, what do you think? I think I'd like to hear from the voters of Massachusetts on this one. You know, I have no position until I'm told what the majority wants. Then I'll vote for that. Perfectly reasonable. Not only is it perfectly reasonable, it's what we in political science say you're supposed to do. And yet, it was the major normative argument against Kerry. Now, this is telling us, as political scientists and as normative theorists, because normative <coughs> theorists are also on this induced bandwagon, that we're not 100% in touch with the normative decisions of the electorate. Now, the normative decisions of the electorate are not always the best guide to the best thing to do. But you might want to ask qui bono. You know, when you see <coughs> something that's different from what you think, you ask, well, are there reasons for them to, th are, there, are there systematic reasons why they might have, so to speak, false consciousness? Are there systematic reasons why they might, might think A, whereas I think B? I don't see any sort of mustache twirlers behind the scene who are trying to sell the American public a bill of goods on this one. I, I actually think that, these, that people are sort of onto something when they say they want somebody gyroscopic. Not that it's better, but that it's just not bad, bad, bad. Um, now, many the way I fell into this whole concept was through some work I had been doing on descriptive representation. Descriptive representation, that means that blacks represent blacks and women represent women and young people represent young people and blah, blah, blah. Um, back when I was sort of growing up in political theory, Descriptive representation was it was a bad thing. It was it was not to be allowed on the table. It was not it was the way it was, I think it was Panic, one of the more respected members of our profession, um, who said, "Would you want morons to represent morons?" And that more or less, you know, that was the end of that discussion, and it didn't. So. And Phillips and, um, and Melissa Williams and I were kind of asking ourselves if we agree with all this, all the way that descriptive representation has been dumped on and all, all those things are true, but why, therefore, do we want women in the Senate? Why? I mean, we do. And so there was this kind of emperor's, you know, I, I, I know I'm not completely wrong. There must be some reason. So we got to work and sort of thinking of some, and now descriptive representation is a bit more. Um, a bit more uh, um, you can talk about it um, whether or not you like it at least it's on the table well when I was thinking about descriptive representation the, my notion of gyroscopic representation to some degree came out of that because I looked at a lot of of, of women and, and I'm particularly interested in but I also looked at Barney <coughs> Frank um, who's you know I went to graduate school with Barney Frank and um, and taught section with him, and, and then he became a you know a member of Congress. And he is what I, so after talking with him, I came up with this concept of surrogate representation. Surrogate representatives are people who represent constituents who are not in their district. So Barney Frank thinks that he represents, believes he represents, acts as if he represents 
gay people throughout the United States. So he has his office. He staffs his office with with, with gay guys, and he answers letters, and he tries to bring forth legislation. Does he do that because they have sanctions over him? Well, to some degree, they, in some cases like this, people send in money, and I'm sure he gets money from the various gay rights organizations. But even if he didn't get that money, he would do the same thing. And so I'm thinking, why? This is not, he's not induced. He's not doing this because they'll vote against him in the next election. In fact, he's kind of doing it a little bit. He has to, he has to make quite a big deal. When, he, when he, I interviewed him, he made quite a big deal of saying, I don't serve my constituency in Brookline any less because of the time I spent, which is, of course, nonsense. I mean, he's 24 hours in the day. And, of course, he's serving a little bit less in order to... But that was his stance, and it was a perfectly reasonable stance because the people in Brookline want that kind of thing to happen. And so they want him to support gay rights, and so that in some sense he's right. But, so he, but he doesn't get... He's, he's serving these constituents who are not going to give him any sanctions, positively or negatively. Many descriptive representatives have this gyroscopic component. That is to say, they are. This also was brought into me when I did some interviewing for a book back in 1981. I was interviewing about the Equal Rights Amendment and asking different legislators, you know, um, sort of, what are you for or against? This was a guy who was against. And I said, well, what do your constituents think? And he said, oh, they're all against it, too, you know. And I said, well, how do you know? And I said, he says, well, I came from my district, and they were brought up the same way that I am or was and worked the same way that I always have. They are me, I am them. Um, and I thought, oh, what a crock, you know. <laughs> Later, I realized he was, he was really on to something. Um, but at the time, I was a little blinded by ideology. Um, so here is a member of Congress talking to John King and saying more or less exactly the same thing. And here's a member of Congress to Bill Bianco. I saying I take you down the hall and introduce you to a member who just drips his district from his shoes to his straw hat. You don't have to go to his district to know what it's like. You just have to look at him. Congress, and then a more analytic, Congress represents its district because each member comes from his district much more so than because he tries to adapt his personal philosophy to what his constituents want. Now, this is a form of gyroscopic. They just sort of, you are an X. And I, uh, having been in Poland right after the transition, I realized with the, with the parties and a kind of um, flux, and two people hit Goldie and her um, a colleague have just written a paper on the fluid, fluidity of the parties in Poland even to this day, but they were much, much more fluid right after transition. Um, I realized that it was very hard to say what was left and right because the left was the communists, but they were the conservatives, so that <coughs> didn't kind of work. And some of the parties, one of the parties called itself the Party X, choosing a signifier that absolutely meant nothing on purpose, and another party um, said very jokingly, wonderful Eastern European sense of humor, that they were, they described their politics as slightly west of center. <laughs> um, meaning, you know, meaning we don't have kind of the crystallized thing. So in such a circumstance, it makes sense if you're a minor 
if you're from a if they're from a mining community, to send somebody from a mining community. And there's to send someone who's descriptively who you are. Because you can't tell from the political process, from the electoral, how they're going to vote. You can't you, you people don't have sort of platforms that are really so you send you send someone who wears a straw hat. And similarly, I don't have any trouble knowing what the black community wants. I am black. Now, we're a lot more sophisticated than that these days. But it was the work with descriptive, think, trying to think through descriptive representation that made me sort of stumble on this idea of a gyroscope, that you, you put these people in there not because you're planning to induce them, I mean, you induce somebody to be a woman? Well, no, no, no. I mean, that doesn't work that way. You pick them because they've had these experiences, because they're from your your kind of district, because they are a minor, because they are committed to a particular set of platforms. And this doesn't have to be at all descriptive. It could be you pick someone, Teddy Kennedy would be an example, because he's sort of a, slightly to the left of, of center in the Democratic Party, and that's about all you can get in America. So you put him in, you know, and and he's got this gyroscope, he's grown up that way, it's part of his self-identity to be this way, and you put him in. So, um, and incidentally, um, just in case, for those of you who don't like descriptive representation, um, the dominant classes have descriptive representation, um, white, males, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out, according to Claudine Gay's work, I'm not, I'm not sure, I think it just got published, that um, they get madder, sort of when a, when a, when a white, white people in a constituency represented by a black are less likely to contact that person and feel less satisfied with their representation than black people who are represented by a white. So it turns out that whites are really concerned with descriptive representation, even perhaps more than blacks. They just don't call it descriptive representation. They call it reality. <coughs> and they don't have to naturalize, as they say. Um, but in many ways, we want people in there who are, so to speak, like us. And that doesn't always have to be skin color. It can be, um, it can be our politics. And representation in some non-Western societies, remember when they did the Loya Jirga in Afghanistan, you sent people from your group, from your religion. from, And the main criterion was, besides being a sort of reasonable person, <coughs> that they were from your group. And they were expected, because of that, to know the kinds of things that you want. Okay, so um, I want to um, maybe... I'll talk a little bit more about gyroscopic representation and then see... Uh, maybe you might, might, might want to... Ask me some questions. Um, how does this relate to <laughs> Burks? When those of you who are political scientists in this room all grew up with a traditional way of describing um, two poles of representation. One was mandate and the other was trustee. Now these are actually 17th century descriptions of, um, of, of two poles, which I think are have connotations that are wildly unhelpful for today's world, and I'd actually like to replace them with induced and gyroscopic. 
because nobody, even back in the 17th century, very few representatives actually had a written mandate from which they could not deviate. But few of them did, but it was very unusual and very impractical, soon dropped. Trustee has very much of a patriarchal, aristocratic uh, overtone. You put someone, you, you, you um, create a trustee for your money, uh, fiduciary relationship, and you appoint a trustee when your child is too young to really be trusted with that money. And you, and there, there's a strong implication even in Burke's original speech to the electors at Bristol, of, and he was a notable, he was from the upper classes, that, you know, I know best, and your job is to kind of put me in there and then let me do what's good for you, the way notables throughout history have thought they were doing what was good for their peasants and, and so forth. That that was in there in Burke's original speech, and it's been part of the notion of trustee ever since. We don't need that. I don't feel that way about Alice Wolfe. It's a division of labor. I pick her and put, their, put it in her. <coughs> I pick her and put her in the legislature and expect her to do her thing. I don't think she is in any way sort of superior to me. And obviously she knows a lot more about the legislature now. But I don't feel toward her as a peasant would feel toward an aristocrat. I'm not expecting. I don't. There's no sense of, I know better than thou. It's, she has my point of, more or less my perspective. I don't want to be a legislator. I'd much rather be a professor. Um, so. I'll put her in and she can do my work. Um, so democratic theorists have tended to treat as undemocratic this gyroscopic notion by larding it with the idea of trustee, which it doesn't need to have, this, this, this hierarchical understanding, which it doesn't have to be, and assuming that the voter kind of gives up the power. But, you know, the voter can always take them out in the next election. What I'm arguing is the voter still has the power, the voter is not powerless. The voter just exercises it over a different entity. So it's not that this is less democratic than the induced form. And what this form of representation does is it couples intrinsic <coughs> motivation on the part of the representative with control um, not over the legislature, not the voter, on the part of the voter. So intrinsic motivation, those of you who know anything about psychology know that um, you know, extrinsic motivation sometimes, uh, sometimes drives out in many cases, drives out intrinsic motivation. You want people to be working from intrinsic motivation. Um, so here you've got intrinsic motivation. And the, it can actually get the voters much more of what they prefer than can the standard induced preference model. Because in the gyroscopic model, the motives of the representative are more aligned with those of the voter than in the standard induced preference model. And the induced preference model, you remember, the representative is going to do something other than what you want if you don't give them the carrots or the sticks. In the gyroscopic model, the representative is going to do what you want because they want it too. So there's actually a much closer alignment of motives. Like in a horse race, which would you prefer to have? Are you going to select a horse that wants to run or are you going to select a horse that runs when it gets whipped? Um, those of you who won money on the races probably would do the first. So the point is, in this, this model, the reins can be completely slack 
even non-existence. There, there can be, there could possibly be no reins at all on the gyroscopic representative. <laughs> if the representative is driven from inside, believing in some side of po- set of policies, and if the voter has an accurate understanding, and this is going to be really critical, an accurate understanding of that direction, then the voter doesn't have to do more than place that representative in the political system and go home. And Jim Fearon said, in, as he put it, electoral accountability is not necessary, meaning this sanctions business. And um, descriptively, that's accurate, as I said, for many offices in the United States. We might think of some parties that way in, in Europe. Now, there are no pure pure types, or maybe there's one pure type somewhere, but we're almost almost all this, some inducement. Um, See what's the next slide. No, that's not. Oops. Okay. Um, um, there's some inducement, um, but I'm going to talk for just a moment. I'll, I'll throw in a little thing about Schumpeter. What some of you who studied Schumpeter may think, oh, this sounds like a lot like Schumpeter's form form of representation, but it differs in a couple of ways. One is that, that Schumpeter was also thought that citizens were not very smart and was trying to figure out a way of getting power out of their hands. The second is that Schumpeter's representative is completely induced. Schumpeter's representative is just like an entrepreneur. Uh, Schumpeter's representative has no inner gyroscope at all and only wants to sell purses or sell markers or whatever, sell policies, you know, sell himself, get himself into the legislature, make money as yeah, the economic. Schumpeter was an economist. And the idea was, I'll do anything that you want me to do, just put me in office, and if you have a lot of representatives doing that and you aggregate them up, just like the invisible hand in economics, it'll work out well. So it's not like Schumpeter. Um, so um, one of the things um, that this suggests um, is a different way of looking at the political system. Um, I was talking with my friend Ben Page about this um, when I was visiting him over the Midwest meeting. And he said, oh, exactly. Um, That's the mistake people make so often about the interest group system. They think that the way pressure works is that you go and you bribe people. Um, to do, bribe legislatures, to, legislators to do this, that, and the other thing. And they can't find much bribing going on. Um, so that means that there's no pressure. No, we know that's not the case. Um, but if, if pressure works by selection and replacement, not by inducement, in other words, if the way the oil interests get what they want is not by bribing people to act, to do X and Y for oil, but to put money into the coffers of those who... Pro, people are pro-oil to begin with, so they get elected. Then you've got somebody who's gyroscopically pro-oil in there. And that's a lot better for you than having to, to try to slip illegally money, money under the table to a bunch of people to induce them to work that way. Now, the big problem here is that these representatives, of course, are not accountable in the usual sense. And that is, doesn't seem to be a problem with Teddy Kennedy. It doesn't seem to be a problem with Alice Wolf. It doesn't seem to be a problem with, you may have legislators right here, you know, in your own district who you feel, who you don't think are particularly corruptible. You just put them into, into office. <coughs> um, but you obviously need integrity. And 
if you were to do a sort of Google search in JSTOR on integrity, you wouldn't, in, under political science, you just wouldn't find many articles on integrity. It's not, it's not something that either the political theorists study or the empirical people study. And um, it's not clear how we create integrity or select for integrity. But an empirical political scientist might, for example, um, want to interview the staffs of the members of people in a state house and say, who's got the most integrity? <coughs> the, the chances are you've had a fairly high inter rater reliability. You'd probably have quite, you know, some consensus on who were the people with the most integrity. Who are the people with the least integrity? Okay, then take a look. Are there structural situations? Are there structural circumstances different? You know, do the people who have quotes most quote unquote integrity? Do they have the luxury of having integrity for some reason? Is, 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 is as economists would put it, is integrity a luxury good? Do you do, you do integrity when you can, you can, you, you're basically sort of rich for one another in money or in other ways, self-esteem, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, what is it about the structural circumstances of some candidates that produce, quote, integrity? What is, what is something about the background that produces integrity? What's going on here? It's never been studied. Um, similarly with, with gyroscopic, how do the gyroscopic and the induced representatives act in the legislature? Do, some of, do they, a priori you could make an argument that the induced and the gyroscopic would listen more to their constituents. The induced are gonna to listen to their constituents because they're afraid, you know, what, what are you, you gonna tell me I wanna do exactly what you want because I wanna be reelected. The gyroscopic ones may be more willing to enter into real negotiations, real talks, trying to get at the bottom of a problem because they have a sense, you know, we're all in the same, we're all trying to get to the same place. Now let's talk about it. Let's see how we can do this. How can we make things better here? Um, how can we solve this problem? I have no idea. A priori, I can say either. But it'd be quite interesting, quite important, I think, to find out um, if we're trying to judge these types of representatives normatively to find out how do they interact with their constituents? How do they interact in the legislature? Are there any ways that we can say one or another of them are better representatives? Um, along with integrity, you also need what's called network accountability. And network accountability is very similar to professional accountability. It's like um, what we have as professors. Um, when you come up for tenure, what happens? The chair of your department writes out to other members of the profession, you know, um, sort of what, what's the work like. People write back, or good, medium, bad, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, possibly, you know, if somebody's plagiarized, that'll come out then probably in those letters. We're held account, we are, if we, if we look at where our sanctions come from, they don't particularly come from our students. Maybe here at OSU they come from the legislature, but mostly they come from our peers. They come from the networks that we're in. <coughs> we want to be able to hold our heads up in what is for us pol polite society. We want to be able to, to have people think our work is good and that we are, you know, that we don't plagiarize and that we're the right kind of people. Uh, so that network accountability is quite critical. But again, we don't really know how this works in the legislature. We, as far as I know, nobody's kind of studied the, re the, the sense of legislators, their reaction to the sanctions. Oh, of course, you know, we have ethics committee and delay and so forth. But network accountability is actually much more uh, subtle than that. 
and it has to do with subtle sanctions as well as sending somebody up to the ethics committee. Um, and it has to do with who you want on your committee and who you, who you, who you say is a good guy, and it's often male. Um, so we need to know what mechanisms of network accountability are in place uh, that, that, um, that produce a little bit of sanction around the outside that makes gyroscopes keep on their gyroscope. Um, and how do these mechanisms work, and when do they fail to work? This is really important. How are these voters going to know where, whether they pick the right gyroscope? This becomes, if the voters are voting this way, and I believe from the last presidential election, a lot of them are. I believe that I am, <coughs> in many cases, not all cases. Then this turns out, the moment of selection, and then four years later, the moment of decision to replace or not, becomes absolutely critical to know, is this person saying on the gyroscope? Um, or has, have my own policies changed that I'm no longer on, their, on the same gyroscope? And we, this is where I think all of Western democracies, and America today very much so, um, are, are falling down. And it's not something, again, that, that we're studying a huge amount in political science, although we are a little bit. And then you need sanctions at the periphery. I touched on that a minute ago with the need for network accountability. But this is very much like sort of morality in general. And I'm not talking about morality in politics necessarily here. I'm only, let's say, you could have a gyroscopic representative who only wanted to lower taxes, obsessed with lowering taxes, or obsessed with with um, keeping abortions from being legal. And you put them in to do that. You know, only that. Well, it, it doesn't people either of those moral, but, but you could do it just for purely self-interested reasons. I don't want to pay any more taxes, and I'm going to put in this person who only wants to lower taxes. They would be a terrorist doctor for um, But, so then the question is, if they begin to wobble off course, um, how, do you, how do you get them back? And, and most efficient polities and most efficient societies work by having most of the things, most of the collective action problems solved by people feeling inside that they ought to pick up the litter that they just dropped. They ought to do this. They ought to do that. They ought to do the other thing. The most efficient society will be the one in which most people do most of the things for that reason, and then you have sanctions, punishments, to keep that, that established situation from unraveling. Because we all know that if one person gets away with it, then the next thing you know is you see someone, the, next, the person who's sort of hovering, well, they got away with it, I'm being a sucker not to do it. The next time the prisoner's dilemma game is played, or the next time whatever it is happens, someone else will flake off and, and start acting self-interestedly. And then if they don't get caught, then someone else will flake off and you let the whole thing unravel. So you need some sanctions. You do need some sanctions, but they don't have to be the way the way the theory that I first outlined at the beginning suggests. The theory that I first outlined at the beginning suggests that they're the whole game. That that's why people, that's why the representatives act the way they do. They're induced by sanctions. It's so to speak 100% that way. The theory that I'm suggesting is one in which the representative acts the way that representative is going to act for basically exogenous reasons, and there is inducement. There are sanctions in the model, but they're 
around, they're on the periphery. They're keeping the whole thing from unraveling. Now, Caesar, I said some of these implications were hairy, and by that I meant a little nervous-making. Um, and so I'm going to suggest some. Um, okay. I don't know whether this is a viable concept, but I've come up with this concept of gyroscopic <coughs> satisfaction, which is sort of the way I feel about Teddy Kennedy and Alice Wolf. Great, they're great. You know, let them retire in the job. They're fine with me. Well, of course, that creates um, incumbency, and, um, and the, indeed, it creates what I might think of as eternal incumbency, more or less, until they, you know, until they retire. Well, you know, political science, our profession, we don't like incumbency. I mean, if you if you look if you look at some some sort of studies comparing countries or studying studies comparing states or studies comparing districts, then one of the most critical and damning things you can say is look at all that incumbency. You know, there's no they haven't had a contested election since aught eight. You know, um, and this is bad, 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 bad. This is a thing. Freedom House will make a mark against them. Other people will make a mark <laughs> against them. You know, this is bad. This is just well, what I'm saying is, whoa, wait a minute. Um, it is bad, I suppose, but then in some sense it is good, isn't it? Um, because you can imagine, this is, this is going to be a, a, a political science nightmare. This is a, you know, Thibault, the economist, he said, um, you know, well, people to some degree use the political situation around them as a determinant of where they move. Obviously, only just one small factor. The other is how much you get paid in the job and whatnot and whatnot. But if, you have a, if you're on the left and, and you have a choice of, let's say, a, a job in a red state and a job in a blue state, you choose the blue state because it'll be more fun. You'll, have, you'll be happier there. And so people often gravitate. People like me gravitate <laughs> to Cambridge and the Nader had more votes than Bush in the first election. <laughs> okay, so what do you get? What do you get? You get very little within district conflict. Um, the majority is perfectly happy with Alice Wolf, Ted Kennedy. I mean, they're they're extremely satisfied. And you predict low citizen activity. This is very bad. The whole the whole political thing is going to collapse. And yet, of course, when you look at some of these. Um, places where there's this uh, gyroscopic satisfaction and eternal incumbency. Actually, they're highly politicized places. Ann Arbor, Cambridge, Massachusetts, these are places <coughs> where people are out there signing petitions and doing all sorts of stuff, move on, this, that, and the other thing. They're very highly politicized. So in this particular case, maybe for exogenous reasons, there doesn't lead to low citizen activity. <coughs> but this is a biggie. I mean, this is a real challenge to to some major deeply held beliefs in political science, namely that incumbency is bad, um, con contested elections are good, um, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe not. You know, where, what am I, um, I'm sorry, what, what is the time? So the, now could talk about bureaucrats in the civil service or not. How much time do I have left? Maybe not. Maybe, well, we have, 35, 40 minutes left, maybe we Oh, great. So I can do some bureaucrats in the civil service. Oh, we'll only well, well, left to the very beginning. Total. Oh, right. total. So, is that right? Yeah. Um, we can okay. start the Okay, I won't do bureaucrats in the civil service. I will only say that um, 
You could do the same riff that I've just done with the representatives. You could do it with the bureaucrats and the civil service. You could say, there are quite a lot of good, honest civil servants out there. And if you make them spend their entire time filling out forms, if you're monitoring them and sanctioning them, and you'll keep them from doing good work. They'll quit. They'll say, to heck with this job. They're out of there. You'll lose the good civil servants, all, in, uh, all because you're trying to induce them rather than let their gyroscope go. Let, let them. They want to be good social workers. They want to work in the school. They want to promote the things that they're doing. Obviously, you have to have some sanctions around the outside to keep them from, especially since, you know, you do tend to get like Washingtonitis. You do tend to think your agency, you know, that saving the whales or whatever is the most important thing in the whole world and so forth. And you, so it, you can't just let everybody kind of go off on their gyroscopes. Um, you have to have some, uh, some sanctions and so forth. But basically, um, I, would be, I would argue here that a lot of this applies also to uh, the bureaucracy. And similarly, some of the, you know, when Matt McCubbins and Tom Schwartz <coughs> distinguish between fire alarm and police patrol oversight, what they're saying is, let somebody ring a, a fire alarm rather than having sort of sanctions all the way along. Wait till something goes wrong and then, and then start to try to uh, straighten it out. Um, so I'll skip all the stuff about the bureaucracy. Um, however, supposing we had this perfect world, Sweden, let us call it. You know. <laughs> Here you have all these bureaucrats who wouldn't dream. I mean, Faber would just love them. They wouldn't dream of ever taking any money under the table. They're out to you know pave the roads honestly, and they wouldn't put any you know bad stuff in the cement. Or they're just nice as anything and, you know, wonderful representatives who are running on gyroscopes and so forth and so on. Um, so should we just, like, is that the perfect world? Do we just leave that to them and then we, the citizens, go about our business um, in the mural Good Government in Siena when it shows what is good government. Good government, everybody just going about their business, plowing the fields and trading and so forth. Good government practically doesn't exist. People don't have to deal with it. That's not what Rousseau would have liked. And he would, have, would not have liked it for some good reasons. Not only the self-protective reasons of, well, we'd better keep the citizen reactive because you know one day those people will start acting badly and then we'll have to jump in. But also because the, those, those bureaucrats and representatives are going to get out of touch. And the citizenry in a democracy and everywhere else, um, there are lots of things that the citizens need to do. The citizens are in touch with their own their own needs and what and and a lot of things need to get done kind of on the very very local level. That is to say, practically the individual level. And if you haven't got people engaged in something that's a, a something larger than themselves, um, you're in not very uh, good shape. So, but there are quite a lot of non-electoral mechanisms <coughs> for citizen activism, and these are not in any way intended to replace elections. But in a, the, the paper that some of you got earlier, which I'm, I didn't, I'm not giving today, um, I also show how elections are catastrophic in many ways. They have horrible, perverse incentives in, for myopia and um, 
there are many perverse incentives involved in, in elections, um, you know, inciting of ethnic hatreds and so forth. Um, but I'm not against elections. Uh, elections are a sine qua non of democracy. We've got to have elections. But uh, they're, they're, necess uh, they're, they're, they're necessary, uh, but they're not sufficient. So here's some other things. Uh, these are supplements. Um, the Chicago police reform, um, where they very successfully, in fact, Archon Fung's work on this shows that the, against all the stuff that we all know from way back, the first time Sid Verber ever wrote a paper, um, uh, you know, namely that SES, that social economic status, uh, high people participate more. Um, first day in, in political sociology 101. Um, no, actually, in the Chicago beat, uh, police in the Chicago <coughs> In Chicago, on the police beats, the poorer neighborhoods participate more. Well, duh. Guess who's got the crime? The poorer neighborhoods have more crime. So, you know, that overcomes the SES bias, and you get um, quite a lot of very good participation with a lot of very good interaction. The police have stopped being, um, well, haven't stopped being brutal, but have re reduced their brutal <laughs> brutality tremendously. They, um, the interactions, the crime is now being watched where the residents have pointed out that it needs to be watched and so forth. It's, it's a really quite successful system. And it's because you've got the, <coughs> the quote, civil servants working with the people on a, on a, on a non-electoral, very immediate level. Participatory budget in Porto Alegre, some of you may know, this is a kind of a not terribly replicable phenomenon because it's a it's an instance of an elected official, in this case the mayor, basically giving away power. You don't see that happen too much, but what the mayor did was, the, it's all a long history of a particular left political party that got power. And so Anyway, they took 10% of the budget and, and said that the people could, the, in, a, in, in various local assemblies and then in bigger assemblies, could allocate it. And you've seen tremendous reduction in clientelism in the electoral system, and you've seen tremendous improvement in the city services since that went on. Um, deliberative as citizen assemblies. Uh, I don't know how many of you know about this, but I was just uh, up in British Columbia a, a couple of months ago, and um, British Columbia was very irritated at its first past the post single member, the citizens were very irritated at the at the electoral system they had. But as you know, giving an electoral system to elected legislators, gyroscopic and wonderful as they may be, to to set up is really putting the fox in with in the chicken house. You know, it's it's too tempting. I mean legislators can't help but be a little self serving in how they choose their their electoral systems. So what they did was they had a random group of citizens. I say random in quotes because um, poorer people didn't 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 put in the, put their names in the hat. Um, these were they took a random group. They invited them to, to come. They chose people. They paid them $150 a day. Um, they they met uh, for various weekends over the course of a year. They investigated lots of electoral systems. They came up with a, a single member transferable vote system, and it's going to a referendum, and it looks from the polls as if it'll probably win by about 60%, um, because it was a, it was 
actually a very reputable sample of citizens. And they did a really reputable job of, <coughs> of investigating the alternatives. Now, these, uh, some of you may know that these deliberative opinion polls have been used to measure um, surveys, but there's a lot of administrative law that says you have to consult the people. You could consult these new citizen assemblies. They're being used in Denmark now, the, uh, all, all over the, um, um, the Commonwealth, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Ad hoc facilitated groups. There's lots of deliberative stuff. Speaking to the city in New York, got the got the original Twin Towers architectural plan changed. Um, they, they it had been very development oriented. They took it to uh, a technologically facilitated huge deliberation of people from New York, where they jiggered the the way the invitations, so they got a pretty representative sample. Um, and the citizens said, "Terrible, we." to veto the legislation, and it, and it got vetoed, and a, 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 new, a new plan came in. Deliberation Day, some of you may know Bruce Ackerman and Jim Fishkin's work on having two days at the time of an election where you pay the citizens to come to deliberate during the day on the issues of the election, and that's actually going to be tried in the United Kingdom. Um, and citizen interpolations, that would be when, that would be getting, oh, and, and the thing about it is citizen, assembly, citizen assemblies, possible combination with the initiative. You know, the way you can use the initiative to get a referendum. Well, you could use the initiative to get a citizen assembly. That would be, and you could get an in, initiative to have a, an interpolation in the sense that you bring whatever bureaucrat or, or representative you, that your citizen group wanted. If you got X number of signatures, you would get a public hearing on a, on a particular topic. There are also, these are just some things that are sort of in the literature or whatever, but there are all sorts of ways that you can involve citizenry. They're not necessarily through the electoral process. So the, so the assumption that political scientists sometimes make of if it's not happening in the electoral process, it's not happening, you know, just isn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't, isn't, doesn't work. So, um, and there, there are lots of other. So here, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that we as political scientists have focused far too much in our understanding of the representative system on this idea of getting representatives to do what they would otherwise not do by threatening them with sanctions or giving them an inducement. We have made this model with inducement at its core our hegemonic model of what representation is. And that has a lot of problems. It's not only not congruent with what the citizenry at large actually thinks a good political pro democratic political process ought to look like. Um, it's not all that great when you think about motivation, the way, you know, the way people actually work. Um, but as soon as you move away from that, you're moving into really uncharted territory. These questions that I asked about, well, what about incumbency? What about eternal incumbency and gyroscopic satisfaction? These are not questions that any of us have dealt with. So you're, as soon as you kind of break this induced um, mold and and start to entertain the possibility of gyroscopic representation and these other forms that don't rest on induced, uh, on sanctions. 
then you get into an uncharted territory that I would kind of invite you into and ask you to help explore in the next 10 years. Because um, I, I think that, it's, uh, that we'll, we'll be able to help other countries um, too. Because the non-Western countries haven't had the sort of best experience with elections. And one um, reason is that when they do the kind of induced kind, um, you know, they, have a, a lot of, they have a lot of experience with inciting ethnic <coughs> hatreds and so forth as a way of getting elected. Um, Milosevic. Um, and uh, there, there are a lot of examples in which the electoral systems just don't seem to have worked terribly well. Um, and there's, and, but this, this gyroscopic thing leads to what um, uh, Guillermo O'Donnell called delegative democracy. You can, you, you can imagine some quite, um, <coughs> some, some gyroscopic representatives who really get out of hand, in which the incumbency advantage becomes so great that the chances of breaking through it and, and deciding that this person is on the wrong gyroscope are practically impossible. Um, and the, the sort of the affairs of state, um, the, the pomp, the position that um, someone has uh, as, as a gyroscopic representative becomes somewhat uncrackable because they become your representative. And I think we could begin to understand some of these patterns if we looked, for example, at patterns of descriptive representation. If you looked like at the Irish and what happened to the Irish, their first stage was being, and this was Martin Kilson kind of gave me this little little insight over the telephone the other day. Um, Martin Kilson's a black political scientist at, at Harvard, and, and he said the the first stage is being a flunky of the working of the ruling class. You just you know you're you're black or you're Irish, whatever, you do what they say. The second stage is uh, that you become, um, and my, this is in my terms, a kind of hero of the people, a sort of Adam Clayton Powell, you can do no wrong, or, or Mayor Curley of Boston. You, you, get to be, you get to be our representative, and you're such a kind of hero that nobody's going to dislodge you. So the gyroscopic problem, the incumbency problem, becomes intensified by the fact that you become the representative of the spirit of the state or the spirit of your community. And then, but then, as more and more people are able to compete, more and more Irish, for example, get law degrees and can compete, there's more than one Irish person who can be elected. They compete against one another, and you pick the best Irish person. <laughs> you don't have to sort of stick with the, any Irish person. And then finally, at the end, you know, John Kennedy gets elected to president of the United States, and the fact that he was Irish was very nice in a couple of areas, but it wasn't really what got him elected as president of the United States. So, so it, at the end, possibly the descriptive element falls off. So, so it may be that we, if we begin to focus on gyroscopic representation, we'll be able to get a sense of stages, where, we're, where we would look for the greatest dangers, and normative theorists would also be able to um, get out from under the, uh, the, the original sort of model of induced and themselves um, begin to come up with some ideas about how to make, how to understand gyroscopic deliberation a little bit more subtly. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um,
we'll take about uh, 25 minutes. Yeah, yeah, sure. uh, it, hopefully, this will help a little. Uh, we'll take about 25 minutes for questions. Before we do, does anybody need chairs? I think there's one, two, possibly three here, if anyone would like to <laughs> sit down. Um, do you feel comfortable calling on people for questions sure. yourself? Sure. Okay, then uh, go ahead. I'll just go first. Uh, just on your last slide, uh, you seem to leave out pressure groups, interest groups, uh, <coughs> non-citizen or whatever you call it, participatory, uh, non-elected me uh, mechanism for citizen activism. Uh, is there some reason why that? As a magnet for citizen activism? Oh, no, actually, in the paper, I had, you know, pages upon pages. And, uh, and interest groups are are extremely important. One of the things that I wanted but to do... But it's not in your list of Why don't you consider them... Um, non-elected mechanisms? I, no, well, because I only have one slide. I mean, I, I didn't... In, I, well, but I, that's overwhelmingly what happens. It's not, you know, Fishkin's thinking about yeah, slow Yeah, but a lot of interest groups are um, focused on the electoral process, but the ones that... And, and so... And let, let, let them be, that's fine. No, I have no yeah, objection to interest groups whatso whatsoever. Um, I mean, I, I have objection to some interest groups. Um, but... Uh, well, so... Um, so no, that's extremely important, and then one would want to ask what facilitates, for example, in Eastern Europe, you know, or France, um, or some places where that have a history of of, of undeveloped organization, uh, undeveloped organization around interests. Suzanne Berger did a quite an interesting study way way back on 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 farmers in France and how difficult they found it to organize. So I think it's ex I think what. That's not the price supports and the fact that they're getting the rents from the government, exactly. Um, well, that though. you should—you would think that that would make them, um, when those price supports went down, they were mad. The, the, the French farmers were mad at one point, and so Suzanne asked, "Since they're mad, why don't they organize?" And now we said, "Don't you know? Don't get mad. Organize." Um, and so I—I uh, I think what one would want to do, and with all these mechanisms. <coughs> is try to look at the different facilitating factors. And it might be that there would be some structural things that would get in the way of one form, and so you might want to go to another form. We don't want to get hung up, I would think, on interest groups as the only form. But I didn't mean to leave it out. I just was trying to put out a few that you might not have thought of. And those were, I was trying to titillate. I mean, you know, I wasn't trying to be exhaustive. Quite the contrary, I was trying to be um, selectively interesting, so to speak. So interest groups didn't get on, but I, I completely agree with you that they're important mechanisms. Yes, you had to say that. Um, actually, I just came from a three-and-a-half-hour faculty meeting about the government and accountability was the crucial issue you were talking about. So if you can give us much food for thought. Yes, yes. Accountability, when, when Larry Summers got into, into trouble, accountability was one of the big things that people, and, and I began to think, you know, well, what do we mean when we're say, when we're making a call for accountability? And I think in the Summers case, we actually did want more narrative accountability than sanctions. I think we wanted to be told what the reasons were, and we wanted to have it not be just a one-way communication, but a two-way communication. Find out what the reasons were and have us say, well, we don't think they're good reasons. And, but that's narrative accountability. I actually have a question. <laughs> um, it strikes me that, that both the inducement model and the gyroscopic model, you seem to be assuming that the relationship of the voter to the governor, in a sense, the reason that voters vote the people they do, is to get power over them, get power over the legislature. Power over something. Over not, over, not necessarily over the representative. Right, yet, but power over the legislature or, or the legislator. And 
that suggests that voters have a fundamental instrumental <coughs> view of the electoral process. And I guess if I think about the voters who keep electing Bernie Frank, do they really think they're going to gain power over anything by electing him continually? I wonder whether some voters vote for people they do merely to be heard, that more expressive rationality kind of assumption as opposed to an instrumental rationality assumption. So I'm wondering, did you mean to imply that it's always instrumental? No. And if not, would your argument be affected if you dropped that and allowed for an expressive rationality? Yes. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think that uh, Brennan and um, other people have done some wonderful work on modeling the expressive um, aspect of, of, of voting. And I, the example that they use in their book um, is um, rooting for a football team They're in, in front of a, not, not, at the game, not at the actual game, but in front of the television set. So they, they can't hear you. If you're at the game, you can think, well, my, my yelling and screaming and whatnot can encourage the home team. But in front of the television set, they cannot hear you. But there you are saying, come on, come on, you know. And so but you're using up energy. You're, you know, you're, you're expending costs. These are costs. Um, but you're doing it for what they call purely expressive purposes. And they're, they're arguing that elections are to some degree like football games, that, that the teams, you know, that they're teams, and you vote for the Democrats because rah, rah, the Democrats, or vote for the Republicans because rah, rah, the Democrats. And I completely agree that that is an area, um, a, you know, a, a motive. Um, but I think that Barney Frank's voters, I'm not in Brooklyn, but if I were to vote for him myself, and I do vote for Alice Wolf, you know, I think they think that he is actually doing some things. That, that of course, he, you know, it's, it's reality out there, um, but in marginal ways, when, particularly when, it's, when there's a more deliberative frame going on, rather than just a simple adversary frame where, where, it's, a where it's a vote and I'm going to win or not win, is, gay rights is sort of not going to win right now. But when it's more deliberative, when you're trying to get people <coughs> to understand what it's like, Bernie Frank has had some major successes in getting members of Congress who didn't understand what it was like to understand what it's like. And so, and I think that a lot of the residents of Brooklyn who are not gay themselves want that. So, so I think that there's no, you know, that's not narrowly instrumental in the law of my property, it's not self-interested. But it's instrumental in producing, in marginal ways, granted, um, the policies that that they think are better. Your uh, your model, the distinction between Jerusalem and Tarascon, seems to me to miss an important element uh, in a democratic society, which is the need for innovation. Need for innovation. innovation you know, I was thinking about the example of uh, Bush versus Kerry and the flip-flop charges and so forth. The, the biggest issue that we have been facing as a society for the last four years or so is how to respond uh, to the attack on the World Trade Center. You know, was it an act of terror? Is it, should it be treated as a police problem, a criminal problem, and so forth? Um, and what Bush did was to respond in a particular way, you know, by saying that this was a war, that it was a war on terror, that we had to mobilize it a certain way against it, and so forth. And so the election last year, then, is really between somebody who had a vision, a conception of what the problem was and how to solve it, Bush, and Kerry, who was at least presented very cleverly, I think by Karl Rove and Bush, <coughs> as somebody who flip-flopped, in other words, didn't have a conception of how to solve the problem. But, but when I think about 
both your gyroscopic model and the infused model, the preferences, the understandings, and so forth all seem to be there. But of course, uh, September 11th represented something very different that these politicians had to respond to, and for which we then have to hold them accountable. So how do we how do we imagine that? How, how do we deal with accountability when there is? And, and I would say that September 11th is only one example, that actually you have everyday examples, that, that we always want politicians to be reacting to new problems. That's a part of what politics, that's a part of what life is all about. But it's not, it's not in your model. Right. It's a really interesting problem, and it's a little bit like deliberation in the sense that I could make an a priori argument on either side for which kind of representative would be most likely to innovate. I could make the argument that the induced representative would be more likely to innovate because the induced is looking around for all sorts of ways to try to get reelected next time and has got his eyes open all the time or her eyes open. On the other hand, I could imagine that the induced representative is so worried about being reelected that he or she doesn't dare try anything innovative. And it would be the more gyroscopic person who says, if they, I don't get reelected, who cares? I think it's really important to try to solve X problem. And the only way to solve X problem, which I care about a lot, is to look for innovation. So I, I could write a script a priori in both ways. And um, I think that if we think that this is an important distinction, maybe people don't think it's an important distinction, we could begin to investigate that. You know, we, we could begin to see. Who, what, uh, and another thing you could say is it might not be that it's just one or the other. It might be on cer certain circumstances and certain circumstances in certain contexts. The induced will innovate more. Is it clear certain to you that, Bush, that Bush is representing the gyroscopic here? No, only no, 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 no. Uh, it's not that Bush is gyroscopic. I mean, carry integrity, integrity, integrity. No, I'm only saying I only use I only use that to show that normatively speaking, the political science set of norms about induced were precisely what Bush was using as a critique. So I, I was only I was only taking them I wasn't saying Bush is gyroscopic and Kerry is flip flop, although there there there's some data to suggest that that might be more true than one would think. But anyway, but I'm not making that argument. I'm I was only using it. Um, and, and I think innovation is extremely important outcome of politics, and you know, the thing that we want politics to produce. And again, I don't see people looking very much at, for example, like electoral <coughs> systems or any kind of, the sort of structural variables that, that we really like in political science and say, and have innovation be the dependent variable and say, is there anything that we can say about what kinds of things, what kinds of structures and what kinds of contexts produce this? But I do think it's an important... Yeah. Um, one comment and then a question. The comment is about your Thibault scenario. And it seems to me that a lot of people would worry about it, not because of decreased activity, but for more conventional million reasons, because it's important to be you know, actively engaged with people who disagree with you, so you need to articulate and defend your core beliefs and assumptions. So I, that's yeah. just a comment. I don't really think it's a problem, because, right. of course, it's only if you have those homogenous communities, and you can imagine lots of, you know, um, very contested um, discussions about which gyroscopic representative we should have. But the question is, so as you were talking, I thought you used examples that were very good for your case, such as um, religious groups or single issue groups. And I was thinking um, about poor people and wondering whether or not you think that poor people need more of the sort of inducement kind of representation. And the reason I'm wondering that, or the question is, 
use this phrase, one of us, and I'm sort of wondering, like, what does it mean to be one of us? Does it mean to really have overlapping interests, perspectives, experiences, in which case it seems to me poor people can't have effective gyroscopic representation because these are elites, they're educated, they're middle class. But of course you could have left-leaning or, you know, more redistributive policy favoring representatives. So do you think that there are some kinds of groups such as poor people who really do need more of that inducement? Or do you think that Ted Kennedy sort of solves that problem? Well, um, poor people are in the position of not being able to have a descriptive representative. And this is sort of one of the paradoxes of the problems of class. And of course, that's true with um, young people, you know, really young people, too. Right, yeah. um, but uh, first of all, descriptive and gyroscopic are not identical. Descri most descriptive representatives are, who act like descriptive representatives are gyroscopic. But it's not at all true that most gyroscopic representatives are just particularly right, descriptive, right. unless you talk about descriptive rather broadly, one of us politically. But I'd like to know more about Patsy Mink. I mean, I've, I've been thinking that one way to, to, and I don't have the time to do this, I'm busy writing some other stuff, but, but um, to, to investigate some of this is to actually look at real people and look at their biographies. And I looked at Patsy, because Gwendolyn Mink is a political scientist, and I know her, so I could call her up and say, well, what was your mother really like, <laughs> um, in a way that I kind of couldn't necessarily just get on the web. Um, Patsy Mink came from a lower middle class background, but a lot of her extended family was poor, an immigrant, and she had all her life a very gyroscopic um, dedication, not only to women's rights, but to immigrant rights and to poor people's things that were good for poor people. Um, so she, in that case, a gyroscopic representative was good for poor people. You can imagine induced representatives of being good for poor people, particularly if they come from a poor district. Um, but um, again, exactly what the costs and benefits are for poor people, I don't know. Um, given the power structure, given the fact that, you know, Adam Javorsky in, in the paper Stone's book, um, is that the title of it, um, made the point that sort of socialist parties are, are in really deep trouble now because they kind of aren't enough workers. <coughs> I mean, the workers aren't a majority, the, the lower level of workers aren't a majority anymore. At the beginning, you know, the idea was you, they, they were a majority, but now they're not. And so there's, there's kind of a, a real problem there, and it's the same problem with poor people. In, in an induced situation, if the representative is going to follow the majority, poor people will have to find a coalition in which they, they are a, a coalition partner who's, that's, that's very um, useful to that representative. And so that representative will pay a lot of attention to them in order to get that piece of the coalition that's going to get that representative the majority. But if you think that you can get a nice chunk of majority and ignore poor people, which tends often to be the case in, in the United States, in that particular context, a gyroscopic representative like somebody like Patsy Mink would be better for poor people. But again, it depends on the context. Um, you know, and, and if you had, if you were you know, representing a barrio or something like that and your entire district was poor people, then an induced representative might be just as good. Um, 
although there's all sorts of clientelistic problems when you get into stuff like that, but nevertheless. So I, I don't, again, I don't think it's sort of a priori um, uh, you, that you can predict it, but you can make some guesses, and, and, and it's quite context dependent. But this seems to be quite important. You know, if you care about poor people, what, what do you want to have happen? Well, maybe what we want is sort of more patchy mix and less sort of fewer induced mm-hmm. folk. Um, yeah, I was reminded when you did your um, periscopic um, and induced uh, distinction of something that I read many years ago, written by Norbert Bobbio. I think it's written by Norbert Bobbio, the Italian Bobbio, um, yeah. and he was mapping that disti- in the distinction along. I, th- I think my computer is called along um, different electoral systems. So for him, that what he called direct representation was what was occurring in the United States, uh, which had a certain kind of electoral system, whereas the more complex um, representation was, was was what was occurring in the in Europe. And I I seem to detect something along these lines when you were talking about um, the party being the gyroscoping in European systems. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about yeah. that, also because. I was thinking, you know, poor people do have a chance of being elected in Europe much more than they do in the United States, for example. And then I had another question that this still related, I guess, to the Bobbia. I think Bobbia was retaining much more of birth uh, than you are willing to retain. But he was doing this not in a sort of an aristocratic way, but rather in a public good, re- you know, recite in regards to the public good kind of way. Uh, and you're not you don't seem to uh, <coughs> be explicit about this. Um, you're not thinking, maybe because you're um, you know, afraid of falling back on the aristocratic bias and so on. Uh, but it seems that if you take, if, so the question yeah. is, what role does the public good have in the gyroscope? Um, uh, so the, and it seems that that would be a way to not completely identify the gyroscopic um, representation with uh, descriptive um, okay, the first one first, um, the issue of the sort of the general electoral system. Almost everything I said is very directly related to the United States, which has what some people call the personal vote, you know. Um, whereas, and, and I threw out a few sort of phrases along the way that said that maybe you could think of political parties this way. You could also think of, there are some political parties that just believe in what they believe. Let's think of old labor in Britain. You know, They believed in what they believed in, and if they didn't win, or Goldwater in the United States, but I won't try to Europe, that's, that's a personal way. You know, they believe in what they believe in. If they don't win the election, they don't win the election so much for, you know, so stupid to let them blow themselves up, whatever, you know. Um, so there are some kind of gyroscopic <coughs> parties who get bigger or lesser amounts of the vote. And there's some parties that are more induced. But I haven't worked <coughs> this out in a party's way because I don't live in Europe. And, I, and since it's sort of a new kind of thing, I'm drawing a lot, actually, on my own experience um, and trying to kind of figure out. And I don't live in Europe. So, so you'd, have to, you'd have to recast it quite grammatically to have it make sense for Europe in terms of parties. 
um, and, um, and you know, and 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 whether you were go whether your attitude toward the parties was that you wanted to induce them with sanctions, or whether you were going to replace them and put the, you know have a party that you put in and see what the conservatives do. They didn't do a very good job. I'll pull them out and I'll put in labor. But you're assuming that the conservatives have a gyroscope. You're assuming that the labor has a gyroscope, and your job is to is to put one in rather than the other, as opposed to saying conservatives, here's my vote. Why don't you try to be more like this? Little. So um, the second one, the public good. Yeah, I wanted. It's not that I've actually written about the public good. For one thing, I think it is a concept that that makes analytic sense, and and as opposed to very large numbers of other people who think it doesn't make analytic sense. Um, and that's a, another talk. Um, I didn't use it here because I wanted <coughs> to describe the representative structurally. So that I said, you, you could have a representative only wanted lower taxes, and I voted for him only because that would vote lower my taxes. And I couldn't give a darn about the public good. Um, in fact, a lot of the people that, when I use real examples, a lot of the people that I'm describing, whether they're left or right, have a vision of the public good. And 90% of people who vote for gyroscopic representatives probably vote for them because of their view of the public good. And that actually that fits in with the accountability problem in a way that I didn't, didn't take the time to explain. But... Um, if you have somebody who's just, you know, wants lower taxes and you know they want lower taxes, um, there are other issues, you know, that come up. And they're out there. They're going to be your representative. Um, and it, and you, might, it, it, you might be kind of a little leery about that. So most people, when they vote for a gyroscopic representative and kind of like to say sort of, good old Ted Kennedy, I'll just, good old Alice Wolf, I'll just put her in there and leave her do that because they think that that person has a concept of the public good. Um, and that allows you, that allows the voter to sort of do their washing or, you know, take their child to soccer practice or whatever it might be and not sit there monitoring and sanctioning all the time because they're, they think that this person is, a, is actually acting a lot for the public good. Um, so there is, a, is an overlap, uh, quite a distinct overlap. But I, I wanted to describe it more broadly because I wanted um, I wanted the structural characteristics of the phenomenon to be clearer. But maybe it would have been better if I'd thrown in the stuff about the public good. Yeah. Um, as an interloper from the law faculty, I guess one of the Thank things that, <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. One of the things that I find um, oddest, uh, not that I doubted in your presentation, but is the sort of the sense of uh, the kind of dichotomous quality yes, in yes. which these uh, models are being portrayed because although uh, your description, I, I've never heard the sort of gyroscopic metaphor being used, but it's hard for me to believe just looking at reality that one could not have a plausible model of politics that incorporates both. Yeah. And partly I'm reacting to my, my own 13 years living in Iowa where you know, the, the gyroscopic senators for a long time now have been Charles Grassley and um, and uh, Tom Parkin. Now, if you look at the gyroscope, you'd think, well, obviously what Iowa wants to do is have no impact on national policy. <laughs> but there are a bunch of issues of local concern in which they're likely to vote the same way. And, and 
So I think even with these sort of gyroscopic folks, when it comes to the local economy, um, there is going to be a sensitivity right. that, that may have been an age of inducement. I guess the question I want to ask, though, and I should say my subfield is uh, administrative work, I am interested in pressing you a little more to find out your thinking about the bureaucracy because, and I know that you were being very brief, but I sort of resist the idea of describing a lot of bureaucratic activities being, you know, I, I want to be a, a good world builder because being, you know, a really good environmental <coughs> regulator captures so little of what's at stake in that daily job. I mean, I suppose one can one can be a, a conspicuously bad environmental regulator, but that's not what people are animated about. And you know, choosing your telecommunications regulator, yeah, there are people who can't read up, who may not be able to tell the acronyms apart, but that's not what this is about. It's really about policy. So I'm not quite sure how to apply your concepts to to these folks. Right. Well. It'd be great to be in further communication with you, actually, by email or something about the bureaucratic thing, and, and, but I, I want to touch on it. The first question about, I, I know I put it in too stark a dichotomy. I, tr I tried to throw in at various points that, the, that there are no pure cases and that, there, that everything is always mixed. I, I can't imagine the most induced representative not having a little bit of a gyroscopic core somewhere and as I said, in any gyroscopic, you need a periphery of, of coercion and inducement. So, um, and in fact, th there are often cases that are closer to 50-50. So I, I, I agree with you. I was only trying to make these fairly stark for analytic purposes, but I, I meant to say throughout that there is, there wasn't, there are sort of, as far as I know, sort of no pure, pure cases. So. Uh, that's on your first point. On the second point about what administrators do, you can have gyroscopic people who differ tremendously. I mean, in other words, I can be an administrator and I think that the best telecommunications policy is A, and you think that the best telecommunications policy is not A. Um, and there, um, depending on what the situation is, if you're in Europe, and the A bureaucrat is coming from Spain and the B the not A bureaucrat is coming from France. The solution that they support that is for the bureaucrats basically to negotiate it out. You know, it doesn't they try to keep a lot of things off. The Monet fantasy that was sort of not worked out completely well. But but the Europe that we know today to the degree that people in the different European countries think of themselves as being European as opposed to being French or Spanish, I would say what they think of themselves as belonging to has been built by bureaucrats. It hasn't been built that much by politicians. It's been built by bureaucrats working in this behind-the-scenes negotiation way. Now this is all hitting the fan, and we've got was the democratic deficit. In fact, my weighing in on the democratic deficit is to say, wait a minute, make sure you don't just get election happy. That curing, you don't cure the democratic deficit just by sort of increasing the number of elections, you know, having presidents and this isn't, you know, making everything more electoral centered. There are all sorts of other, like those last bunch of things that I was looking at, lots of other ways of making it democratic other than <coughs> elections. But I think that what I'd love to talk with you at some length about is um, 
what you see as the motivations of different bureaucrats, what you see as the role of accountability, whether you see to the degree to which you see that accountability taking narrative forms, the degree to which you see it taking network forms, and the degree to which you see it in the almost classic way that we teach it, so to speak, we don't necessarily teach it in political science, but people imagine it in which the voter exercises power over the politician, getting the poli inducing the politician to act in certain ways, and then the politician exercises power over the bureaucrat, and the bureaucrat, the civil servant, does A or does B because of because they'll be fired if they don't, because they won't be promoted if they don't, for, in other words, for, for external, extrinsic reasons, and to the degree that there are other things working in there. And I've, um, if, you'll, if we, you'll give me your name afterwards, I'd love to talk with you about it. Well, I'm sure this will be redundant, because I was thinking in some of the same directions. I think about George Bush and the Christian right, who may feel that he's one of them. Yes. And yet they seem, seem to continue to monitor very carefully they seem to be noisy when they think he's moving in a direction they don't like. They seem to be, uh, I mean, all those things you maybe wouldn't expect by your ideal type models. And I think it might be because the, the sort of policy issues he's thinking about are over such a wide range of issues. But, you know, your Barney, your Barney plan can go to a person who thinks of, say, representing descriptively on a single dimension. Because the reality is nobody's going to represent you on all the various dimensions. Maybe Ted Kennedy can't for you. Uh, but you know, evidently, it, for most people, it's going to be very difficult to decide which descriptive dimension is this person representing me on. And when they move off to these other things, I'm not so sure. And then we'll monitor. And I'm just wondering if, if and maybe it's more about descriptive representation than it's about your distinction between the two models. But as the issue space has become very complicated, how do you decide what descriptive uh, dimension <coughs> on which to feel con or to be confident about? And, and why do sort of special interest groups continue to see these models so carefully, even if they pick one of their own. I think those are actually two separate questions, and they're both really interesting. And um, I'll take the descriptive one first. That's absolutely right. And of course, you know, blacks are sort of finding, well, gee, Clarence Thomas is not a descriptive, you know, the right kind of descriptive representative for many, many African Americans. And similarly, I remember the, the moment when the National Organization for Women, so fairly early in its, its career, had to decide between endorsing a non-progressive woman and a progressive man. And they decided, you know, left-wing man. They, they went for the man. But it was a, it was a, it was a moment of analytic self-discovery. It was a, a moment of recognizing that there were many descriptive dimensions on which, and I think that as, um, you know, as, as groups become more and more integrated into the, the I think the phrase in the ethnic literature is incorporated, incorporation into the political system, as they become more and more incorporated into the political system, they begin to be much more subtle about their descriptive dimensions and, and much more likely to recognize a group of them. And also much more likely to have a whole ton of different representatives buying. Clarence Thomas didn't happen until there was a considerable amount of political incorporation in, in this. Of course, there was Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington wasn't as, as sort of anti-Galupian as he's made out to be in some respects. But anyway, there have always been the problems. <coughs> but by and large, now you're getting a much greater array of representation among lots of ethnic groups. Lots more people who go to law school and whatnot. And people are beginning to say, well, wait a minute. It's not just me, qua. Latina, it's 
this particular kind of Latina, and all the work on essentialism that, that's come out of the women's movement, for example, that, um, that sort of, what is this woman, or what is this black business? There's no essence of this. So, so I think that people are becoming much more subtle about their, about what this, what's descriptive. Um, I think the example of Bush and the um, Christian right is a very nice one. And I would guess that if you had a much, much greater descriptive um, history in the church, there might be a little bit less monitoring. I mean, Bush had a moment of, of conversion. I mean, that's, that's a true conversion. That's a real coming to God and so forth. And he has made it by leaving things in his state of the union speech and whatnot. He's, he's <coughs> sort of pre presented in myself, I think, probably quite accurately as someone who is genuinely um, on the wavelength of the Christian right. Um, but you could be forgiven for being a little suspicious if you were from that group, because he wasn't born that way, so to speak. You know, I mean, it's like in, in Vermont towns when some people are, are when you vote for somebody, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I was born in this town. That, that would be, that's, why should that, who cares? Well, people care because it means I thought, you were born there and you went to those schools and you know those people, you know the issues. Well, Bush wasn't born there. No. And so there might be a little bit more suspicion. But I think it fits into the point that you were making. Namely, you can never go with a pure gyroscope. And reputation, uh, you know, any rational choice person will tell you, it's a reputation is a big, you know, and Trump <coughs> has been done Teddy Kennedy, you can figure what his gyroscope is, or Alice Wolf, you can figure out if they've been there, there, you know, they've just been doing it, you know. <laughs> and, um, whereas George Bush has a little bit more of a problem, you know, you don't have such a track record to go on. So, um, I think, yes, you have to always have the sanctions around the outside, and that means you have to monitor. Um, but then in the question of monitoring, it's a question of how intrusive are you if you're, if you're trying to kind of keep the representative going in a way that doesn't make them feel like that, um, you know, microscope or, or you know, a little camera over their shoulder the entire time. I'm, I'm afraid we're really out of oh. time uh, for our formal dis discussion. And well. so uh, we'll carry on talking informally at the okay. reception. Yeah. So together we've uh, generated a lot of warmth. <laughs> and, uh, I'd like you to join me in focusing that warmth on thinking. People see through that. Yeah. No, I do think it's. I just I talk about it before now. I'm going to retire. Like at a 